Well, good morning, New City Church. Again, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 8. We're going to continue our series in Grace for the Nations. We've been looking at uh, the book of Romans, and we've been spending a few weeks specifically in Romans chapter 8 because you know that's my favorite chapter in all of Scripture, and hopefully your affection for Romans 8 is growing as we've been walking through this each week. Uh, so we wanted to take a little extra time to look at Romans 8 uh, together. So if you have a Bible, we're going to read that text uh, this morning. We're going to finish up Romans 8. We're going to look at Romans 12 next week and uh, end our series. Uh, we'll have a new series uh, coming in the Psalms this summer, so looking forward to jumping in with you uh, there as well. So Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at the last few verses starting in verse 26. So Romans 8 verses 26 to 39, it says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let us pray for a moment. Lord, uh, thank you for Romans 8. Thank you for the promises that are here, uh, promises of hope, uh, promises of help in our weakness, promises that nothing under the sun can separate us from the love of Christ. So help us walk in that, help us believe that, help us embrace that. And maybe for some of us, this new a new idea for us, help us believe that and may it change our lives as we see your grace and your mercy here in Romans 8. So help us now open our eyes, open our hearts to hear and receive from you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been looking at Romans 8, uh, we were reminded that Romans 8 is a, a church that Paul has, the writer, has never visited. And so he's trying to encourage this young church, this young, immature church that has all kinds of problems, like most letters of the New Testament, which gives me great comfort and great great hope. But he's, he's not trying to uh, do a theological deep dive into justification for the sake of debate or just to leave it on its own. The, the point of Romans, Romans, the whole book in the letter, is not just to fill our heads with ideas about who God is and justification and sanctification and the plan of redemption and sin, as beautiful and important as those things are. But according to Romans 8, what he wants 
them to do and for us to do is to experience the power of the gospel, to experience the power of walking with Christ, to experience the the power of God's love in our lives. And that's where it's kind of shifted to kind of get it on the ground that as Paul has laid out for seven chapters, you know, these robust ideas about justification and sanctification and how God has worked in redemption and how he redeems sinners and how he's redeeming the whole cosmos. Now he's come on the ground and say, well, what does it look like to now walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to experience God in our daily lives? And in particular, picking up from last week, is Paul began to talk about suffering. Uh, the fact in verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, it says that um, it says we will suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then when he gets into verse, verses 18 and following, we, we see this, this idea that, that not only are we suffering, not only is the entire world groaning for its redemption, Paul wants to speak right into the middle of that and say, well, what does it look like now to walk in confidence even when our lives are falling apart? How can we keep on going when life circumstances aren't great? How can we have a deep assurance and confidence in Christ that all of this is worthwhile? And I think for all of us, the whole globe, (laughs) walking through a pandemic is to say, how do we keep on even going when things just are, are uncertain and our future is uncertain? And Paul wants to address that at the last part of Romans 8, I think in very, very profound, but also very practical Ways And I think for us to walk in confidence in the future with, with God and to have an, a robust assurance, it's going to require four things from our text. Uh, we need a promised future hope. We need divine assistance in prayer. We need a robust understanding of God's work in everything. And we need a daily practice. And so that's what I'm going to, to look at for a few moments here uh, this morning. So, so first, a promised future hope. Now, this, this is picking up a few verses that we looked at last week. Um, because the question is, well, what determines how we live in the present moment. Well, if, if you want to uh, live well in the present, you need to have a, a promised future hope. It's, it's all about how we see the future that informs our present uh, living. And, and we saw that in, in Paul's argument last week in verses 18 to 25, for he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then when you jump down to 24 and 25, he says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we uh, hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, so Paul's setting the trajectory to say, if you want to live confident, sure and life now, it all, it's all about how you see the future, how you see your future hope. These present sufferings are nothing compared to what's coming. Nothing compared to the inheritance that's coming to, towards you. So the future is informing our present, that current struggles, current difficult circumstances, and even the good of life are nothing compared to what is coming for God's children, as we talked about last week. Our adoption and the redemption of the entire cosmos. That's why the entire gr- creation is groaning, going, this can't be the way it is. There's, there's got to be something else. There, there's just a deep ache in every human soul because we're made in the image of God that, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so we need a promised future hope because that's going to inform how we live today. Now, this doesn't mean Christians minimize difficulties by any means. And it also doesn't mean we don't celebrate them any either. The, Paul isn't saying, you know, let's minimize our sufferings and our struggles and then let's celebrate them and kind of live these masochistic lives. He's not, not saying that at all. But he, what he's saying is there's a band-aid of 
present sufferings that God wants us to rip off because it's nothing compared to what is coming. That all the pain in our short lives here on earth is going to be nothing to the, compared to the inheritance that is, that is coming towards us. And because we have this future hope, now we can live confident, assurant lives in the power of the Spirit now. It shapes how we live now based on how we see the future. I, I love what C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, a book he wrote. He says, All pains and pleasures we have known on earth are early initiations in the movements of that dance. But the dance itself is strictly incomparable with the sufferings of this present time. And the dance he's talking about is the, the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. This divine dance that God, you know, Jesus says in John 17, that we're invited into experience the same love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have experienced from all of eternity. Now, God invites us into that same dance. So he's saying, these, ple- these present pains and pleasures, the good and the bad, are nothing compared to the extreme joy and gladness and grace and love that we'll experience with Christ and his people in the new heavens and the earth that is coming. So you and I need a, a promised future hope to continue to walk in, in the power of the Holy Spirit here and now. It's all how we see the future determines how we live today. Now, now secondly, the, the heart of our text is we also need divine assistance in prayer. Divine assistance in prayer. Because, you know, a future hope is nice, but what about now? How do I go about my, my lives when circumstances are great, when there's loss, when there's pain, when there's pandemics, when there's cancer, when there's kids that are difficult, when there's job situations that are, are difficult? How do I keep on going? Well, Paul's going to hone in on, on prayer. If you notice that in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And can I just pause there for a moment? I love how honest the scriptures are. He's acknowledging the fact that we're weak. Like, in your weakness. Like, that's the human experience. That's the Christian experience. That we're all weak. He says, in our weakness, assuming we're all going to have moments of weakness, we're all going to have those questions of, how do I keep on going? How do I get through this? How do I go another day? Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Jobs are hard. The money's running out. So in, in our weakness, it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Pa- Paul says a lot here. He says, first, what, the Spirit, the personal presence of Christ, wants to come and help us pray. <laughs> like, that's what? Well, that makes total sense. Like, have you been there? When life is hard and you feel like, I can't even go to God. I don't even know what to pray for. I don't even know what to, to ask for in this moment. God says, hey, that's okay. The Spirit's going to come alongside you and going to intercede on your behalf and help you in your weakness. When you don't even know how to come to God, when you don't even know what to pray, you don't even have words that are sufficient, God will come to the rescue. Now, remember a couple weeks ago, uh, in verse 9 of Romans 8, we talked about how the Spirit is for all of God's people. It says, you, in verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So, the, the comforter, the teacher, 
the encourager, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, God's personal presence of Christ. This says the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So Christ comes and dwells with us, walks with us, and as we've talked about the last few weeks, reminds us that we belong to God, reminds us that our adoption is sure, reminds us that we're forgiven, reminds us that we've been pardoned, reminds us that, that there is nothing that can come against us. That's what the Spirit does. And so when we have the, the, the task of praying and, and loss and struggle and we don't know what to say... The Spirit comes right alongside us and says, I'm with you. I'm interceding on your behalf. In your weakness, I will help you. Now, also what I think is is just astounding in these these texts, which just shows God's grace and God's compassion uh, toward us, is even when we don't have the language to pray, even we don't know what to say, even though we don't have the wisdom to pray, whatever it may be, the Father shows his compassion towards us in prayer, and he understands wholeheartedly. Because in verse 27, notice this little phrase, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is a, 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 a direct, if you want to say direct quote about the Father's compassion That he searches hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows our inner workings. He knows our fears. He knows our anxieties. He knows our worries. He knows our doubts. He knows our sins. He, He knows everything about us, and yet he still comes to us to help us. He knows our struggle in prayer when life isn't going well. He knows our situation when there's a pandemic going on. We should never feel like we can't pray. Because the Spirit enables us to pray. The Father has shown us His compassion. That Even Jesus Himself, as Scriptures will say, intercedes for us as well. So everybody's involved in the Trinity, right? This, that, that's just a mind-blowing. I don't have time to kind of unpack that. But the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all involved in all of it. Like Christ redeems you so that you can pray. The, the Father's saying, I love you and I understand your struggle. I search hearts and know that the words won't come out. But the Spirit of God, the personal presence of Christ is going to come to you and help you, that we all need divine assistance and prayer to keep on going when life is falling apart and when life is, is good. Because here's what I found in my life, that, that it's not only the times when things are, are hard and difficult and it feels like you're pushing a boulder up, up a mountain, but it's also when things are good. How easy is it to get comfortable and go, I don't even need to pray, right? Things are good, right? I mean, my my prayer life is actually can be awful when things are going well because you feel like in some ways I'm doing, I'm making it happen, but not daily depending on relying on the mercies and power and grace and wisdom of God. So the Father comes along with us. Douglas uh, Moo, who has a fantastic last name, um, is a New Testament scholar, uh, and he has a a, a quote uh, about this Trinitarian reality of, of the Father and the Son helping us in prayer. He says, There is one in heaven, the Son of God, who intercedes on our behalf, defending us from all charges that might be brought against us, guaranteeing salvation in the day of judgment. But there is also, Paul asserts in these verses, an intercessor in the heart, the Spirit of God, who effectively prays to the Father on our behalf throughout the difficulties and uncertainties of our lives here on earth. It's a beautiful picture of God's mercy that that he comes and he dwells with us. He walks with us. He's for us, not against us. So you and I, when we are finding life difficult, when we're finding it difficult to, to keep on going, the Spirit of God comes alongside us to help us in our weakness. 
Like, like this gets away from this this kind of bootstrap Christianity that it's just it's 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 all about you know will and determination and I got to do it and I got to make it happen and that doesn't mean we're not active in our faith by any means. It doesn't mean we're just passive and just kind of sitting back for, waiting for heaven. But what it does is it gives us the sense of of confidence and assurance and courage that even in our weakest moments, God Himself is with us and He understands that sometimes you don't pray as you should. And he doesn't kick you out of the family, as we talked about last week, that we're still his kids. That there's times where we say things and do things, and we're overwhelmed with anxiety and worry, and yet God goes, I understand, but I'm coming alongside you. So divine assistance in prayer. So we need a a promised future hope to keep on going, to live with confidence and assurance in Christ and the power of the Spirit. We also need divine assistance in prayer, but also we need a robust understanding of God's work in everything. I know that's a, a mouthful, but that, that comes from, from Romans 28 and following. Romans eight twenty eight, I should say. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. How many of you have that on a coffee mug in your kitchen right now? How many of you have that on a t-shirt? How many of you have been encouraged in a moment of suffering that a, a beautiful saint, a beautiful Christian, a beautiful old lady came up to you and said, Ryan, but you know that God is working the good for, for all, in all things, right? I've heard this verse a million times, and it is a a fantastic verse that that I think is for us to understand, but we need to understand it in in its context, because this is far from a coffee mug verse. We know that God is working in everything. That, that's the baseline thought here for Paul. That, that, that even as the whole creation is groaning, even as we are groaning, even though when our circumstances aren't ideal, when there's loss and suffering and pain and uncertainty... We know even in those moments, and all the good, God is at work. Now, Paul is saying all of this in verse 28, not in some general abstract way. Because if you take verse 28 and you just slap it on a mug and you slap it on a t-shirt, but you don't read it in its context, it's very general, it's very sentimental, and it's actually not as robust if you keep on reading. Because if you keep on reading, there's something greater going on. God's vision for what is good and expand for what is good in our lives is way more expansive if you read verses 29 and 30. Cuz notice what it says in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So verse 28 is beautiful and magnificent that God is working in the good and the bad circumstances of life. But if you keep reading, he's doing something way, way bigger and more expansive in our lives. He is ultimately conforming us into the image of Christ. He's making us more like Jesus in the difficulties, in the good, whatever is going on in our lives, in our present pandemic, in cancer, in the loss of children, in the loss of a job, whatever our circumstances throw at us, whatever life throws at us, God in the midst of that is working through that for our good and his, his glory, conforming us to be like Jesus. That's what we call, call sanctification, 
It's the, the process by which God is conforming us more into the image of Christ. And, and the thought here and the, the argument of, of Romans 8 has, has been that the world is broken and fractured by sin. The, the entire creation is groaning, waiting for redemption, waiting for things to be made right, waiting for the world to be healed, waiting for our own lives and our bodies and our souls to be healed ultimately as, as well. That the first Adam broke the, the world, that he sinned in the garden with, with Eve. That he disobeyed God. And so when sin comes in the, the, the world, even though we're made in the image of God, even though we were made to and designed to love and follow and serve God and, and to love each other and to love the creation, that was fractured when sin came into the world. The first Adam, as, as Paul will say in Romans, in, in Romans uh, 6. But the second Adam has come, Jesus Christ who wants to re-image us, wants to transform us into his image. Not the image of sin, not the image of rebellion, not the image of of Adam, that everything and every inclination is about ourselves and and about what I get in my glory. He says, I want to re-image you into the kindness and compassion and grace and mercy that you see in Jesus Christ, what Jesus is like. So the good that God is working through the ups and the downs and the pains and the sorrows of life are always to make us more like like Christ. We are taking on the, the family resemblance of Christ. That's why in verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn born among many brothers. You notice the familial language here. That the people of God, disciples of Jesus, Christians, whatever language you want to use, are to take on family likeness. That, that we are to take on the likeness of our brother, Jesus. Isn't that interesting that in families, I don't know if you've, you've ever experienced this, but I see it with couples. Um, I've seen it in my own life, which is really scary and weird, and I feel bad for her. Um, but you actually begin to take on the resemblance of your spouses in many ways. And I don't mean you look like them. Uh, but you take, but over time, there's like this weird connection that happens. Your kids, they, they begin to, to mimic you. They begin to take on the, the resemblance of the family, the likeness, the character, the way you do things, right? It's kind of scary. Like, and then this is even more profound is that, that families that adopt children, so they don't have biological children, even the kids begin to kind of look like them a little bit. I mean, ever had the, I mean, I know there's certain, obviously, if they're different ethnicities, that's not always the case, but they take on the family resemblance. They may even talk the same way. This is what Paul's doing here. God had a plan of redemption. So everything in your life is to help you become more like your brother, Jesus. To take on resemblance of the family. To look more like what the family's about. To take on the priorities and the values of that, that family. So, so the, the coffee mug verse is, is great, verse 28. But what he's doing is, is absolutely profound, that there's more going on, that, that every loss that we have, every failure that we have, every time we're overwhelmed by anxiety and worry, when we lose children, when a marriage falls apart, when, when, when disabilities come, when, the, when our health is not getting better, whatever the situation may be, know this, that God works for the good of those who love them, that he's right in the midst of all those things, making you, conforming you into the image of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor many, many years ago in England, said these words about this verse. He says, ultimately the proof of a right approach to these doctrines is that you find in them the greatest urge to holiness and sanctification. If your belief of these doctrines has not driven you to be uh, to holiness, you are in a dangerous condition. You are misusing them to say, well, it's all right with me. It matters not, therefore, what I do. I am saved. 
No one can truly see these doctrines without being humbled. This is the motivation to live lives of holiness and godliness. To love God with all our minds, hearts, souls, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves is the fact that that's God's plan of redemption from day one. It's not just to get us saved and go to heaven and, you know, dance on clouds. It's to conform us into the image of the Son. Now, Paul's going to flush that out even more because this is why, why I don't want to leave 28. If you don't read it in the context, it's, it is kind of just, a, oh, that's, that's nice. God's working some good out in my life, but he's doing something uh, way more profound. Now, notice when we get down to, to not only 29, but 30. For those of you foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's this foreknowing and predestination. I know we, we love that. <laughs> We'll get to that in a second. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul wants to to show again how even more robust this is. We are to be conformed in the image of the Son to become more like Jesus. That's part of God's plans and purposes. Through all the things that are difficult and hard and all the good things in life, he's using it all. But notice the, the process by which God is conforming us into the image of Jesus. And this is true for all Christians. If you're a believer in Christ, this, these are all yours. These are all yours. This isn't you know, picking one or the other, and maybe this will happen if I work hard enough. It's a whole package deal, if you will. Um, so first he said that, that we're foreknew us. So when God knows someone, he sets his love on them from eternity past. That's what foreknew means. Like knowing isn't just knowing facts about people. Now, he knows every person that was ever made because he made them. He knows all that's going on in human history. But for the believer in Christ, he foreknew them and set his love on them. When knowing in the Old Testament is a very intimate language. It's, it's, it, it actually has kind of sexual connotations. But to know somebody, again, not, not that how God sees us, but it's this very intimate, close connection that, that when someone knew another person, you know, they would have, you know, you know how that goes. You can explain that to your children later. But when he knows us, he sets his love on us. And Deuteronomy says that he loved Israel not because of their might, not because of they were skilled, not because of their competence, but he loved them because he loved them, because he knew them before eternity passed. He set their love on them. So, so think about that in daily life. When you're falling apart and you're not measuring up and you can't pray and, and, you, and you have fears and you have worries and you have doubts, God goes, well, guess what? I knew you before eternity passed. And I set my love on you. It was already there. So stop, stop worrying so much. Stop, stop trying to earn something. Stop trying to merit something. I, I knew you. Which flows, which makes sense because he flows into predestined. I, I know that sound, that, that's always like a big theological debate, but it's actually not as complicated as we make it. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Predestination is just a planned destination. <laughs> Why? Because he loves us. So, so the, the process is he, he, he called us into his family before eternity passed to, to ensure that we would respond. But, but he says, I have this plan, this destiny for you, this purpose for you before eternity passed. It's not based on just your willpower or your desire. Are you saying yes to me? I was already at work behind the scenes before you were born. I have this destiny. And so what does that mean? It means God's going to see it through to the end. 
that even in the most horrific life circumstances, when life is falling apart, imagine this first century church that are being persecuted, being killed, being pushed to a side. And imagine us, just we're riddled with cancer. Our, our, our minds just don't function. We're riddled with anxiety. Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Whatever the situation, we lose our job. We have a disability. We have um, health that's just not getting better. He says, before eternity passed, I had a destiny for you to conform you into the image of Christ. That I'm even using this to make you more like my son. These temporary sufferings, these present sufferings aren't compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. So we have this future destiny of glory and being conformed in the image of Jesus. He's going to see it out. It's not us just pulling ourselves together and just going like, okay, I got I to gotta do this. I got to be a good Christian. I got to be spiritual. I got to be, you know, mature. And again, this actually makes us more active than passive because we know God is already at work in us. There's nothing we have to prove. It's always the debate, you know, it's free will and, and God's sovereignty and how do we work that out? The scriptures don't need to play that game. It's all of it. There's, God is already at work. I mean, it's you're mowing your lawn, and it's like God's hand's always on the mower, and sometimes we have to throw our hands on there, but he never lets go of the handle on the mower. The work, Paul says, I began in you, I will complete. Okay, enough on that. I, I went too long on that. But we're also called and justified. I use these together. That, that God works out a plan in time. So, so not only is it working out in human history and eternity past, I should say. Not only is it worked out in, in, in eternity, but it's also worked out in the present. So this isn't just like, well, God saved and saves people and they'll always be saved and it doesn't really matter what we do. No, he actually calls us into relationship and we actually respond making our justification secure. That's what, what Paul's saying here. Those he foreknew, he also predestined, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son, and verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. That the moment you and I say yes to Jesus, this is God's calling, so he calls us, and we respond, we hear the gospel, we hear our mother or our father talk about Jesus, we have a friend who shares the gospel with us, we read something in scripture, we, we see something on TV, we, however we came to Christ, that's God's call. He's, he's wooing us into relationship. And when we say yes, and we say, I trust Christ and his work on my behalf, we are justified. We are declared innocent, right? His righteousness becomes our righteousness. The gavel has been set. Now, that has to happen for all of us. Now, that doesn't mean, if, hey, if you grew up in the church and that's all you've ever known, it doesn't mean you have to have some moment on, you know, July 3rd, 1988, angels showed up in my bedroom and I said yes to Jesus. A lot of us, we don't even know when that happened, but we, we see the fruit in our lives and we know that all we've ever known is Christ. But, but however that happens, there is a moment where we are declared innocent, declared right in God's eyes. That when we trust Christ, justification is transferred to us, and that's never taken away, which makes sense because he says, then we'll be glorified. God completes his plan in eternity. Sin is eradicated, and we are made perfect in body and in soul. That's what it means to be glorified. And see, this is the whole process. This is the good that God is working in us. In verse 28, 
that, that we would be called and justified and that, that we'd be forgiven and pardoned and then also we'd be glorified that, that our souls and our bodies would be healed and going back to Romans 8 that the entire cosmos is being healed. This is the plan and purpose of God. So, so don't think that, that pandemics are just some accident, some blip that God goes, I don't know how that got through. Don't think wars and famines are some accident that God goes, I, I don't know. Don't think racism and sexism is some blip that God doesn't know and doesn't understand that's going on. He's using all of it, even sin to conform his people into the image of God and to heal the entire universe. That's what's going on. <laughs> like, like, yeah, our, our, some of our circumstances are awful and difficult, and these seasons are difficult, but that doesn't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. It doesn't compare to the good that he's doing in us to make us more like Jesus. So how this affects our present reality is that we can now look down the chain of redemption, that we are a called people. We're a, you could say, a foreloved people, a predestined, justified, and soon-to-be-glorified people, that, that we can look down the chain and go, God is doing way more than I ever give him credit, even in sorrow, even in pain. I, I'm stunned how, how often in our daily lives that we don't marvel at this. Like, we, we look at our current situation with the pandemic and, and we'd rather fight and disagree on Facebook than marvel at, even in a pandemic, God is doing something. God is redeeming us. God is transforming us. God is redeeming the whole world. Yeah, there is an ache in the cosmos. That's why we don't know what to do because it's always been there because redemption hasn't come yet. But when these truths settle on us, that even in our hardest difficult moments we can remember oh yeah god god's at work he's using even this and that this is not happy clappy christianity believe me this isn't like suffering i welcome it yes it's great that's not what paul's doing here at all it's not elevating suffering it's not elevating loss and saying yeah it's great i welcome it it's actually saying it's not those things that we're concerned those things are painful and those things are a a struggle we're not going to ever minister to someone and say like oh yeah well it does stink yeah but you know god is working out for the good of those who love him but to say it's not those things that we marvel at but it's underneath those things that god hasn't left you or abandoned you and he's right in the thick of it conforming us into the image of the son So that's how we keep on going, is that we need to know that God is at work in everything in our lives and in the universe. Lastly, a daily practice, a daily practice. Notice in verse 31, Paul begins to ask these questions. What shall we say about these things? All the things that he's talked about in in chapter, uh, right before this, in chapter 8. What then shall we say, say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as is written for your sake we are being killed all day long no in all these things we are more than conquerors we just sang about that one of the greatest 
question and answer responses in all of the New Testament when it comes to Paul's writings. I, I love this because because he's asking the question. He's saying, hey, have you seen verse 28? Have you seen that God is working in the good of those who love him to conform them to the image of Christ? Have you seen that you've been called and, and you've been predestined and called and justified and you're going to be glorified? So in light of those things, why are you freaking out? Why are you freaking out? If God didn't hold back his, his most prized possession, his only son, do you think he's going to hold back anything in your life? <laughs> Not even danger, nakedness, sword. I don't even know what nakedness means. It sounds like a bad situation. <laughs> Whatever life throws at you, there's nothing that can separate you from his love. So, so what are you so uh, afraid of? This is the, the, the question of all questions, and it's the question that is central to the, the Christian life. Is there anything in my life, anyone or anything that can separate me from God's love? And Paul, with no hesitation, says there is nothing, not one thing, that will ruin what God has already begun in you, that will ruin what he's already begun in human history. Nothing will separate us no pandemics, no loss of life, no cancer, no injustice, no racism, no sexism. It doesn't matter. Whatever the thing is, there is nothing that can separate you from this love. Because of all of what he just said in verses 28 and 29 and 30. So why are you freaking out? Why are you overwhelmed with anxiety? But this is where the, the practice comes in because this is a daily battle. Because I'm not going to stand up here and just go like, you know what, I've memorized Romans 8, I'm immune to these things. I never struggle. I never have anxiety or fear. I never have doubts. Uh, I've always just have this robust confidence in Christ no matter what comes into my life. You've heard my story a million times, but when my wife and I lost our second child after four days, I had some issues with God. Why are you doing this to us? I've done everything right, quote-unquote, older brother talk. (laughs) Right? I'm a pastor. I've given my life to you. Why are you taking our child from us? But I didn't realize what he was doing in Romans 28 and 29 and 30, that that even in those things, I'm working in your life to make you more like Jesus. And you may hang around me and say, that's obviously the work still needs to be done (laughs) if you hang around me long enough. But I can tell you this, that I am more compassionate and more patient with people that have had miscarriages, have lost children. We've been able to minister to other people because of losing a child. Now, would I wish that upon anybody? No. But I can say with Paul, there's nothing that can separate us from our love, even the loss of a child. Even the loss of, of, of a child. So, so daily, hear me out, daily we need practices in our lives to get these things deep in us so that we continue to walk faithfully, that we can continue to walk when things get really, really hard. We need these truths to saturate our hearts and our souls so that we can live into these things. So, There's nothing in human experience. Paul just laid that out. Not life, nor death. I mean, verse 38, death, nor life, no angels, no rulers, no things present, no things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's there's nothing under the sun, and even above the sun, in the spiritual realm, in time, in space. There's nothing that can separate us from Christ's love, our past, our present, our future, the physical realm, the spiritual realm. It's all covered. So the daily practice is we need to think about these things. Are you afraid? Are you worried? Are you feeling guilty? Are you not living in assurance and confidence in the power of the love of God? Are you insecure? 
Are you worrying about jobs tomorrow or money? Are you are just overwhelmed with life? Here's what I would encourage you, is you're not thinking. <laughs> this is what Martin Lowe-Jones calls logic on fire. The, the book of the Bible is not just doctrines to, to memorize and go, okay, I believe now. As we said, he wants them to experience the power of the gospel. So when you and I feel overwhelmed, when we feel afraid, when we feel worried, when we're not certain about the future, is we need to think on these things. We need to meditate on these things. As Paul said earlier, we need to pray over these things. God, help me believe these things. There's nothing. If I, if I don't get a job, if the cancer isn't healed, if the child doesn't get better, if the pandemic never ends, there is nothing under the sun that will separate me from you and your presence. We need to keep reading and praying and thinking and pondering and living these truths daily. Daily. Because I don't know about you, I call it gospel amnesia, but it's a daily problem as I forget who I am in Christ. I forget Romans 8, that God is working for the good of those who love him. And I need to daily meditate, think, practice, pray over these truths so that I know when worry comes and stress comes and loss comes and uncertainty comes, I can still walk in confidence and assurance and the love of Christ and I can walk in his power. New City Church, it's no accident that in the time of a pandemic we would walk through a text like Romans 8. I believe that with all my heart that we could continually come back to these and say, there is nothing that we need to ultimately, ultimately freak out over. Nothing. There is nothing ultimately that we need to lose sleep over. And that doesn't mean we don't care about loss, or we don't care about suffering or pain by any means. Of course we do. I mean, how many of us have, have just cried when we felt overwhelmed by whatever? But it's coming back to texts like this to say, God is with us and for us and nothing will separate us from him, and nothing will separate us from the plan that he is unfolding in our lives and in the universe. That's really good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Romans 8, that re- reminding us that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Life, nor death, physical world, spiritual world, loss, heartache, Suffering, sin, struggle, worry, anxiety, loss of a job, money. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, you are at work in our lives. We are your kids, and you never abandon your kids. So thankful for these realities. And I just pray it would go deep into our lives. Just as, as Paul wanted his, his little church, this little church, not to just know things about God and have theological ideas or biblical ideas, but, but to really experience the love and the power of the gospel and, and, and Christ. So help us not just have ideas about you, but, but to experience your love in real tangible ways. So help us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you worship with us?